And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Hey, good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. Hey, I'll tell you what, though, just between you and I, if they don't get that coffee bar thing worked out, I'm looking for another church. Anybody there with me? My wife has been looking ever since we started this church, so I'm just like right there. Oh, I'm kidding. That was, that was hard, wasn't it? But uh, yeah, so I had to, I made my coffee this morning, brought it in. We've got an espresso machine at home, of course. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I got too much chocolate, and this is a mocha, and I got too much chocolate, so I had to put a little more coffee, and then I got too much coffee, I had to put a little bit more mocha, and then I had to put a little more, I got too much mocha, and I had to put a little bit more coffee. And so I'm flying high here to this morning. <laughs> Baby, I'm not even sure if I'm going to come down for a landing during this service. But I was, I was so crazy. I think that last service, I messed up my vocal cords here. So uh, I'll tell you what, we got a great message, great study here this morning. Uh, you can turn to Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 24, certainty in a world of doubt, talking about being contagious. And um, take a look at your sermon notes there. Is your love for Jesus contagious? There's a good question. Woohoo! That may be a bit convicting also. Is your love for Jesus contagious? In other words, would people describe you as having a contagious love for Jesus? That when they look at your life, they're, attractive, they're attracted to how you relate to God and your love for God. It just kind of radiates your life. And, and maybe they don't even know that your source, your source is Jesus, but you just have a joy about you and maybe then you can tell them about Jesus. I happen to believe that to the degree that you live in the reality of his love for you, to the degree that you live in the reality of his love for you, do you have any idea how much he loves you? When you live in the reality of his love for you, it's to the degree your love for him will be contagious. So if your love for him isn't contagious, <laughs> I mean, it's not something you kind of work up. It's like you got to get back to his love for you. You just gotta learn how to bask in the reality of his love for you. And, and you guys hear me say this all the time, that it's, it's gotta be more than just, you know that he loves you, you've gotta have the experience in your heart. You've gotta live in the reality of it, and you gotta learn what that means, and how, how do you experience his love regularly down deep in your heart, where you're living in the reality of his love, and then out of that, you will have a contagious love for him. It will be contagious because those that are around you will see it and they'll go, wow, I want, I want what, what you have in your relationship with God. In fact, your contagious love for him is the best way to put on display his amazing love for you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love him, why? Because he first loved us. You guys kind of mumbled that. Some of you just said, oh, because he first loved us. But, yeah, well, because he first loves us. He loves us, why? We love him. That's right. I got that all backwards, didn't I? Well, no wonder you guys can't even follow me here, huh? This guy's so jacked up on caffeine. Uh, so how does that go anyway? We love him because he first loves us. Yes, he loves us, and so therefore we love him. We love him in response to his love for us. It's preemptive love. His love always comes first. And so he, he loves us amazingly, and that's going to change our life. And you're going to see in the notes here, contagious Christians have a mission, a message, and a motive. 
So we'll look at all three of those. It's found there in our text, John, uh, Luke 10, 1 through 24. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Because I need a lot of help this morning <laughs> where I'm headed. So, uh, so God, we love you. We love your presence. We love studying your word. And so, God, as it tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, it, it is absolutely amazing that we are, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for your own possession. We belong to you so that we may proclaim your excellencies. As it says in 1 Peter 2, 9, the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And indeed, you have done that. And so, God, may we learn how to let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father who is in heaven. Teach us how to be contagious in having a mission, a message, and a motive for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. It'll take some time to work through it, 24 verses. I'll talk a little bit about it as we work through it. But uh, we have been about eight months in the Gospel of Luke. We'll probably be another... Well, it'll probably take, I'm kind of estimating, we'll probably take one break. Uh, we love studying like this here. Uh, this is probably the longest study we've ever had. Our past longest study was Genesis. We spent a whole year going through the book of Genesis a number of years ago. But this will probably take us all the way to Easter next year. <laughs> and, uh, and so somewhere around there, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But uh, love studying God's word like this. And so we've been going eight, eight months, and now we're in the 10th chapter. And so here we go. Chapter 10, verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72, 72 others and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. So this, this is, he's commissioning, he's, these are, this is their mission, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. Uh, just stop there just for a minute. So when you look around in America today, I, you would probably agree with me, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of people that don't know Jesus. There's a lot of people that don't know Christ. And so the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's very few that have a contagious love for Jesus, is what he's saying. And we all need that. So the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. We need to pray that God will send more labors into the harvest, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. That's just the life of everyday life. And then he says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Wow, that's not a very motivational uh, statement there in the locker room of life. And God comes, uh, Jesus shows up and says, okay, okay, team, here we go. Get ready. I'm sending you out as as." Lambs among wolves. What? Does that sound a little odd to you? To me it does. I'm thinking, how about wolves among lambs? We're going to go out there and devour them. But that's not how he works. And what in the world does that mean? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm going to tell you what that means. We're, we're going to get there in just a minute uh, as we work through this study. But I think there's something pretty insightful there. It's really about our attitude in, in, in evangelism. And he's really giving us some really skills to personal evangelism, how to, to win those that are around us to Christ and how to live our lives and how to be contagious in our joy. And then he goes, verse four, he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So very culturally relevant here, but there's some principles that apply to us. 
We'll get to that. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, so how many have ever shared your faith with uh, maybe a family member or a friend and they totally rejected you? They're just like, ah, show of hands. Yeah, yeah. So he's given us insight how to, how to respond to that. Because you're going to get that. You might even have people laugh at you, ridicule you. That, that's kind of normal, normal in our world. And so he's just saying, so whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. He's just saying, don't take it personally. Dust, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. Nevertheless, know this, this is pretty harsh, that the kingdom of God has come near, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. In other words, they're going to face judgment. They're going to face judgment, and so um, actually, more than anything, you should pity them. And he goes on and he says in verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. The word woe here is, is not a curse, it's, it's compassion, it's brokenhearted. He's just saying, oh my goodness, do you have any idea the the trajectory of your life? Do you see the path of your life? You're headed towards destruction apart from Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you're doomed. He's brokenhearted. That's, that should be that compassion. The word for compassion, and you often see that in the life of Jesus, is it, the word is that, it means, it means gut ache. It's our lower intestines where you just feel like you got a shot to the gut. And that's, that's a little bit of that word, what that word represents. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. I think it's important to understand a little bit here that, that sin, sin, 2.13 of Jeremiah describes sin. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Jesus, for broken cisterns. That for a while they might bring a certain amount of satisfaction, but in, in time they're going to run dry and they're not going to be satisfying. And So he's almost saying, don't you see the trajectory of your life? Don't you see where you're headed? Don't you see that you're drinking what you're drinking from? You're, you're, you're drinking from a, a cesspool when I offer you living water. So there's almost this pleading. Don't you understand what you're doing by rejecting Christ and rejecting his plan for your life? Pretty intense stuff here. And so for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. The word repentance is it's actually a very positive thing in the Bible. Romans 2, 4, it says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. In essence, that's what sin is. Sin is, is uh, being deceived into thinking that God doesn't have your best interest at heart, that somehow you're going to find greater degrees of happiness and fulfillment and meaning in life apart from God, which simply is not true. It's a lie. But... Uh, and so repentance is turning away from that and saying, wait, 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 wait. He created me, only he knows that it's in him that I find my heart's deepest longings satisfied. And so he's pleading here. 
And um, he says, verse 14, but it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. You're going to hell. You almost get an idea here, and, and I think it's true, to whom much is given, much is required. So there's almost a level of judgment based on how much revelation they have received about God and how they responded to it. Whatever level of revelation they received and how they responded to it, God will judge them based on that. Luke 12, 48 makes it pretty clear. To whom much is given, much is required. So if you live in America today where there's the gospel is in a, in, a, in a lot of ways, in some ways, really plentiful. There's churches on just about every corner. There's opportunity for people, but I think the judgment is gonna be much more harsh. Verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. We're, so when we bring the gospel to people, we're just bringing the mail. We didn't write the mail, he wrote the mail, we're just the mail carriers, and that's what he's saying. So if they rejected you, they're actually rejecting God, the one that, that I'm the one that sent you. And now what's interesting, the next part of this is that the, the 72 return with joy, but guess what, they're rejoicing about the wrong stuff because he, he corrects them here. And so the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Then you might think, wow. But he's, he's going to correct them and say, you, you guys are celebrating the wrong stuff. That would be almost like saying, wow, look how big our church is. Because, because they don't actually say, hey, we preached the gospel and people's lives were changed. Oh, it was wonderful. We had a front row seat to see what God does best. But it was more about them. Look how great we are. Look at the size of our church. Look how many people we're attracting. Look how big our buildings are. That's kind of what he's talking about here. We can fall prey to that, which is interesting. Oftentimes when I ask people why they go to a particular church, it typically falls in that category. It's more about the temporal than the eternal. And so he says, and, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Not only is he giving us the fact that he's deity, he's God, he was there when Satan fell, but he's saying, you're talking words that caused Satan to fall. He had that same level of pride as what it's saying here. That's pretty heavy stuff. And then he says, behold, I, I have given you authority to tread on ser serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's sweet, what he's saying there. Do you, he's saying, Yes, you are right. You have a lot of power. Oh my goodness, the authority that I've given you. So let's just, let me, let me talk about that just for a minute here. So James 4.2 says, we have not because we ask not. James 5.16 says that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So what we could say based on that, understanding our authority and power, is that uh, prayer makes things happen, or preaching, proclamation, and demonstration of the gospel. So when we bring the gospel to people, or when we pray, prayer makes things happen that would otherwise not happen if we didn't pray. In other words, he's just saying, do you have any idea of the authority and the power that I've given you? That you can go into a home and bring, bring my power, my grace, my freedom into their lives. That's the gospel power. And, and yes, that can be celebrated, but he says, what you need to rejoice in, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, oh, I love this, that your names are written in heaven. 
that I, the eternal God, I know you and you have intimacy with me. And regardless of whether your day goes good or bad, it doesn't matter how many people listen to you or don't listen to you or how big your building is or how successful you might be in work or ministry or any area of your life. What matters most is that I know you and you know me. That's, that's really important. That's, that's pretty significant. He just said, you guys have lost perspective. This is the really important thing. Then he goes on, talks about, kind of elaborates a little bit more on those people that really know him, that are part of his family. He says, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Such was your, your, your grace, your favor. So, so hey, okay, so this is what's so phenomenal about this is that he's really making a distinction. Every religion in this world, whether it's the JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, or the Mormons, or, or Islam, Muslims, or any group of people, if you were to look at their basic belief system, it's really the good are in, the bad are out. In other words, if you hit their standard, they have a, they have a list. It's called kind of, they have a certain list of works righteousness is what I would call it, but, uh, or some standard, some code of ethics, or whatever, and if you, if you hit it, boom, you're in, you're part of us, but if you don't, you're not part of us. But that's not Christianity, that's not grace, because it's not the good are in, the bad are out, it's the humble are in, the proud are out, all you need is need. That's amazing. All you need is to recognize I don't have what it takes to build the bridge across the chasm that separates me from this eternal God, but he did it for us through his son, Jesus. I mean, did you see that? He says, so he's hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, that's the proud, and revealed them to little children, that's the humble. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's part of his grace. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed. The word blessed means total fulfillment, complete well-being. So total fulfillment, complete well-being are the eyes, are the eyes that see what you see. So, so what do they see? <laughs> what do we see? Here, here's what we see. We see that, uh, that the gospel is about finding so much, so much joy in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that it, that it ruins you, it wrecks you for anything else. That's what, that's what they see. Those are the eyes that they see. But they, they are captivated by the, the Lord Jesus. And they, and they realize, and this is what we know, is that, the, that belief is more than agreement with facts in the head about the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's uh, more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. And if you're beginning to see that, if you get glimpses of that when we gather regularly and we study God's word, oh my goodness, he's working in your life. Your eyes are opening up spiritually speaking. He wasn't talking about physical eyes. He's talking about spiritual eyes. He's going, oh my goodness. You're beginning to be captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, and that is what transforms your life. And he says, for I tell you that many prophets, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and, and we see it. If we're a follower of Christ, we see that. To see what, what you see 
and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Bam, that's good stuff. That's, that text just is amazing. It just stood off the page to me as I was studying it this last week. There's just so much there, so let's talk about this. Okay, we got some work to do. You guys ready? Ready to dig in? Grab your sermon notes. Here we go, we'll talk mission here. First of all, that's verses one through three. Now five times, not one, not two, not three, not four, five times in the Gospels, in the New Testament, so you got the Gospels, then you got the book of Acts. We are told to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. We are on mission, that's what it tells us. So every Christian is on mission. That's your first fill in the blank. Verses one through three uses the word send. The Greek word for that is apostle, to send, but the Latin word is mission. And so what's fascinating here, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Darren taught on Luke 9, one through two. That's Jesus sending out the 12. And now I'm teaching on Jesus sending out the 72. Now, what's the difference? Well, the 12 were the pastors, the leaders. Now, if we didn't have chapter 10, most people, and many people say this even today, they say, well, that's the mission, ministry and mission. Oh, that's all about the pastors. It's all about the leaders. It's all about the clergy. But then we have this teaching in chapter 10, and he's sending out the 72, and so immediately we know, no, it's not all about the clergy, it's also about the laity. It's not just about the pastors, it's also about the parishioners. It's all of us, all of us are on mission. That's the point that he's wanting to get across here. Every Christian is on mission. If you're a Christian, you are on mission. The purpose of your life is far greater than making a living, paying the bills, going on vacation, loving and enjoying your family and friends. Those are all big, those are all good, those are all important, but within that context, you are on mission. When you're at family gatherings, you're on mission. You have been placed there for a strategic reason, and that's to let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That you would be a contagious Christian. That person you talk to over the fence there, fence where you live, and you're carrying on conversation, you're not there accidentally. You're there on mission. That place where you work, when you go to on Monday morning, you're on mission. You're not just punching the clock. You're there by divine design. And that's why we've, we've got to get a sense of that. That's what he's talking about here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most exhilarating, true story of sacrificial love that has ever captivated the heart of man. And as a Christian, you have been made a character in and a carrier of this great story of redemption through our Savior Jesus with infinite and eternal implications. What are the implications? What are the infinite and eternal implications? Hey, how about this? Life and death, heaven and hell, people's lives are hanging in the balance. Now, as a, as a medic, when I was with Phoenix Fire as a paramedic, we realized, we took it very seriously. I needed to have my skill level at a very high level. I needed to practice. I needed to know how to start those IVs. I need to know how to know my drug box and know how to med uh, administer the medications and the drugs and, and how to intubate and manage a person's airway and to do all that. Why? Because people's lives were hanging in the balance. People's lives were hanging in the balance. But that was temporal. I've been away from the fire department now for a long time. Most of those people that we saved and, and made a difference in their life, they've probably gone on into eternity. That was important but not near as important as what we do. People's lives are hanging in a balance for all eternity. 
That's why we need to know. We need to know the gospel, and we need to be living the gospel. We need to be sharing the gospel. That's what he's saying here. Now, we've talked about this. Let me just kind of help you to understand what Desert Breeze is about. We have a 5G process here, and we take people through what is known as the game of life. We'll be offering that in the fall. We offer it twice a year. But this 5G process works something like this. So if you're really a healthy Christian, this is what your life will look like. You'll be a genuine Christian, someone who's made a commitment to Christ and to a local church family. And then you'll be a growing Christian because if you're genuine, you're really walking with God, you're gonna wanna live his word. So you're gonna make a, dis- uh, make a commitment to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth. You're gonna to wanna to continue to grow in your relationship with God. But if you're genuine and growing, you're gonna be giving. You're gonna be involved in ministry. Ministry is service to believers. And not only are you going to be a giving Christian, you're going to be a going Christian. You're going to begin to look around and realize, hey, wait, God has placed me in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my family, strategic, so that I can be an influence in their life for Jesus. And so ministry is service to believers. Mission is your service to unbelievers. So here's, and by the way, we do all four of those for the fifth G, for God's glory. Ain't about us, it's about him. Now, now I should be able to come to you after you've been hanging out with us uh, for a while and say, hey, so what's your, what's your ministry here at Desert Breeze? How are you contributing? Where, where are you apart? And then I also ought to say, so where are you strategically, who, who are you praying for right now? What neighbors? You know, for me, it's my Muslim neighbors across the street. And, and it's the neighbors, as Nancy and I go about and we drive through the neighborhood and as we ride our bike out there, we'll pray for the neighbors in that street. I pray for the people that drive on I-17 out here and they see our sign, that somehow maybe God would draw them in. And man, we, we, what a phenomenal location. We have a, an amazing visitor flow that comes in here and I just pray, oh God, God, use this, use us, use you. I pray for you, God would use you. Uh, so, so, that, so that's what, should be th- what you should be thinking if indeed you understand that every Christian is on mission. So you got a ministry, you got a mission. And by the way, the reason for this, next point in your notes, every Christian is called in to, to be blessed and sent out to be a blessing. So just as Jesus sent out the 12, he is now sending out the 72. How did he send out the 12? Well, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. He says he sent them out to preach, cast out demons, and heal the sick. So to, to preach, persuade people the truth, cast out demons, liberate people's uh, souls from what is enslaving them, and then heal the sick, yeah, physically, relationally, financially, spiritually, emotionally. So every believer has been called into closeness with God. Oh, I love that. That's, that's the essence of the Christian life, is intimacy with God. And the benefits that brings to our lives, it fills our lives up. So we are blessed, and so then he sends us out to be a blessing. So this is how it works. This is how it works. So once you've tasted, once you've tasted of intimacy with God, the creator of the galaxies, who loves us, adores us, gave his life for us, once you've tasted of intimacy with God, I mean, it's, there's nothing quite like it. Think about that. His joy is, is your strength. His sovereignty becomes your sanity. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. There's joy in his presence. You begin to experience the joy of his presence and a joy unlike you've ever experienced before. The, the comfort of his love, there's nothing quite like the comfort of his love. 
the strength of his power, the significance of being called a child of God. And, and you're, no longer, you're no longer focused on yourself anymore. You're focused on, you're focused on others. In fact, um, self-absorbed people are, are empty of glory. They're empty of that. They're miserable people, by the way. And, and by the way, we live in America today. Would you look around? We've got a lot of self-absorbed people. Would you say that? Kind of part of the American way. We, we kind of promote this self-absorption. And oh my goodness, that's a miserable way to live. But man, when your life, when your heart is filled up with, with who God is and what he's done for you, then you, then you want to go out and empty yourself so that others can come in and see him. And so every Christian is called in to be blessed and sent out to be a blessing. Here's the next one. Every Christian is uniquely shaped to, to make a difference that no one else can make. So verses 1 through 12, I'm sorry, verses 1 and 12, two times he uses the word 72. The Greek translation of the Hebrew, what does that 72 mean? Well, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint shows us in Genesis 10, the table of nations, in which you had a list of all the nations on the face of the earth. Guess how many there were? 72. 72. Yeah, so what it's saying here is that God's family is multidimensional racially, culturally, ethnically, and personality. So he wants his people, the churches, to be made up of the nations of the world. We are to reach out to the nations of the world. But it's, it's more than that. It, it actually works in, in, in a way that's very, uh, very much about our, our individuality, our diversity. Is that, So you got this diversity of God's family among the nations, but also there's a diversity of individuals within those nations, and you need to know that you are, you're not an accident. You're not an accident. In fact, God does not mass produce us on, on an assembly line. You are a unique, one-of-a-kind original. In fact, listen, God broke the mold after he made you. It's a good thing, huh? What do you think? Just turn to the person next to you and say, it's a, it's a good thing. He broke the mold. And they won't, know, they won't even know what, they're talk, what you're talking about, whether it was you or them, okay? It's a good thing he broke the mold. What do you mean by that? Yeah, one of you is enough. Yep, 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 yep. And so only you can be you. No one else can play the role God has for you. If you don't make your unique contribution, it won't be made. There are some lives only you can reach, some needs only you can meet, some demons only you can cast out. He doesn't call you to do everything, okay? But he calls you to do something. He hasn't called you to do everything, but he's called you to do something. What is the something that you're doing? How are you contributing? What are you doing in ministry and, and in missions? And don't beat yourself up over it. You might have to get back to genuine and growing because that might be the case. You might need to really understand, am I, am I walking in vital union with him? Do I have a relationship with him? Do I know him? And then out of that, am I growing in my relationship with him? Because it's gonna only be natural that you're gonna wanna make an impact for him. You're going to contribute to the ministry and make an impact in this world. And, uh, and it's going to be based on how he's uniquely shaped you. Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, life experiences. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. Now, okay, so that's it. So we got a mission. 
Every Christian is on a mission. Every Christian is called into intimacy and sent out to bless others. We're called in to bless, sent out to bless others. And there's a uniqueness to how God has shaped us so that we can make that impact that he wants us to make. But now we need to talk about the message. Ah, oh, yes, the message that our, that our lives and all that we do, there should be the demonstration and proclamation of the gospel. Now, I'm gonna have you do something in just a minute, but this is what you need to understand. I'm heartbroken over this, by the way, is that I see this in our culture today, that as it relates to the gospel, one generation believes the gospel, the second one assumes it, the third one is gonna inevitably deny it. We got a whole generation that's denying the gospel. And it's because... It's because we had a generation that assumed the gospel. If you assume the gospel, if you're not hearing the gospel, if you don't know the gospel, in fact, what's fascinating about this, if you ask most American Christians what the gospel is, most couldn't tell you what the gospel is. You need to know the gospel. You need to understand it. How are you gonna help someone see Christ if you don't even know the gospel yourself? So, okay, so here's the question for you. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, what's the gospel? Ask them, ask them, what is the gospel? See if you can put it in just a, a quick sentence. Real quick, real quick. Okay, take a look at your notes because I gave you the answer there if you just wanted to look down. You, of course, you'd have to fill in the blank, uh, the few blanks there. But this is pretty incredible. I mean, this is pretty important stuff. So here's the, here's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. That is so profound. That is unbelievable. This is unlike anything else on the planet. So good news, the good news, it's not good advice. You guys know the difference between good advice and good news? Good advice is what you must do to be right with God. Good news is what he has done to make us right with him. Oh, everybody look up here. Hey, 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 it's been done. It's not what you do, it's been done. You have access to God. You can have intimacy with God based on what Jesus has done. What has he done? He died on the cross in your place for your sins. That should rock your world. When you understand that, that'll change you. That will transform you. We've been reconciled. See, all of our issues on this planet currently, all of the sin and suffering is because we, it's crying out that the world needs to be reconciled to God. Sin and suffering is symptomatic of our need to be reconciled to God. God sent his son to reconcile us. He did that for us. And so you and I right now have access into the throne room of God because of what Jesus has done. Yeah, but I'm not a very good person. I know you're not a very good person. I've hung out with you. And, and, uh, and I'm not either and you've, because you've hung out with me. And, and so guess what? Both of us are in desperate need of grace. And, and thank God we have it. Amen. We have his grace. And so we don't, come into the throne room based on our performance. We do it based on the performance of another, and that's Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and so we get credit for that on our account. It's, it's an imputed righteousness. It's not works righteousness. Remember what I said. The humble are in, proud are out, all you need is need. Yes, that's it, yes. 
Yes, and you, and you enter into it. And believe me, it will change your life. It will change the way you see life and do life and respond to life. His son died in our place for our sins who repent and believe. So repenting and believing, once again, it is, it is you begin to find so much joy in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that it wrecks you, it ruins you for anything else. So the gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history that changes your status forever. We go from being object, objects of God's wrath to beloved children of God. We go from being hell-bound to heaven-bound. It's not something you can achieve, but only receive. It's not something that you earn, but only embrace by grace, by grace through faith in Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. I never get tired of the gospel. We, we make a good effort to preach it every week because it's like, you know, and people say, well, I've heard that before. Well, yeah, okay, you've heard it before, but is it ravishing your heart and life each and every day? I mean, I've heard that my wife tells me that she loves me every day. Well, maybe not every day, but, but man, I'll tell you what, I love it when she does. And I don't say, oh, I already knew that. I've already heard that before. When she says, I love you, and I say, oh, I've already heard that before. No, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> what, what was that you said? You said you love me? Yeah. What else? Yeah. I love it. And we, we, that's why we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear it regularly, daily. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. So the wonder of the cross is that the very, in the very same stroke, this is the wonder of the cross, in the very same stroke, it satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God. It satisfies the love of God. The love of God is that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification. It satisfies the justice of God is that aspect of the nature of God that demands punishment for sin. So what we see in the cross, when we look at the cross, it, it says to us, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die. It was indispensable. He had to die for me. But it doesn't stop there. He loved me so much he wanted to die for me. And, and uh, I'm, I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. I've never been more loved. And so, and so the, this idea on the cross, the love and justice of God are vindicated and demonstrated. It's the indispensable, costly, sacrificial love of God that transforms your heart. This is what ultimately transforms your heart. The indispensable, there's no other way. Costly, oh my goodness. The sacrificial love of God. I want to show you a video here on this Father's Day weekend. It's uh, a father's legacy of sacrificial love. I want you to get, just get a glimpse of our, I think it gives us a glimpse of our Father in heaven's love for us. Watch this video. I was called to an emergency room to console a family that had lost its dad. I also anointed the injured son, whom the father had died to save. Priests are often called to the hospitals, but this visit was different. The dad was my father, Thomas Vanderwoody, and the son he saved was my youngest brother, Joseph. So I was, I was, I'd called mom and dad, and I was driving out to home, and that's when my brother Steve came in rain. You know, hey, something terrible is tragic. Actually, what is tragic is happened on the farm. Josie's had an accident, and, and Dad, uh, you know, we don't, you know, some tragic's happened to Dad. So Tom and Joseph were taking down the pool. I was sitting on the front porch, and 
we never walked around the septic tank. We just, nobody ever went over that way, but that, that's where Tom and Joseph were taking down the pool that day. I, I got a call from my wife. She said, um, Joseph fell in the septic tank. I, 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 think, I think your dad drowned. I, I said, what? I ran in the house and called 911 and went back around. I just started screaming to God, where are you? And um, Joseph looked up at me and he said, Mom. So I knew it was Joseph. He was covered in sewage. Tom was trying to push Joseph out of there. And of course, Tom, I don't know if it was the gases or um, just his exhaustion when he went under. There was nothing I could do because we were holding Joseph and um, there was no way I could get down there to get him. There was uh, nothing around that would help him. So we waited, it seemed like, for an eternity for the ambulance to come and the fire trucks. And I don't know if the fireman went down there. I don't know how he got him out, but he pulled him out. And he had, I could tell Tom's legs were just Limp, it, it, there, was no, there was no life in his legs, so I knew that God had taken him. And then on the way to the uh, emergency room, uh, the man that was driving the, the ambulance said, your husband has, has gone on. And um, so it happened so quick. Some might say, if dad went waste, you know, it's like, I mean, Josie's Down syndrome, so what can he really do? There are people that would say that, I believe. And um, it's like, um, my dad wouldn't say that. Um, he's one of his sons, so he would have done that for any one of us. That's what we know. You know, it wasn't about dad, you know, for him. He was going to sacrifice himself and do whatever was necessary for everybody else around him. Time when uh, you know down, Down's kids are delayed in all their development. So, uh, in order for their brain to develop properly, they have to go back and relive certain things that we just go through naturally for a quick period of time. So, like normally in, in your child development during a stage where you're crawling, that helps your brain develop. So, Dad made these really long socks for his arms, and uh, and Joseph would crawl around. Here's my dad. He's raised all these kids and, you know, he's crawling around outside on the ground. He's crawling around on the floor everywhere with my brother Joseph. So he just, he taught us an incredible example about it doesn't matter what, you know, what people think or it's all about just giving of yourself. He did mirror what Christ did for us on the cross. Um, Christ died for us so that we too will be able to be in heaven someday. Uh, just a, a great example of you know, what is, uh, how, how valued human life is, that our, that our Lord would come and take on our human nature to redeem us. We're all worth it. 
regardless of whatever handicaps or imperfections we have. His legacy is, uh, in my opinion, uh, selfless love. The way he lived his life and every aspect of it was to serve. To those of us in the family, it was very difficult to understand in the moment. It's, uh, it's something where we've come to understand Christ's sacrifice even more so because of Dad's sacrifice for Joseph. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. It's, um, so that gives you just a, just a glimpse. See, see what you cost him. See what you cost him, the Father, to reconcile you back to himself. See how valuable you are to him. That's the cross. That's the cross. I, I'm a... I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. Um, there has never been a parent and never will be a parent on earth who wants the best and the greatest joy for their child or their children as much as your Father in heaven wants for you. So in, in, in this world, when you see a father's love for their child like that story, that is a glimpse of your daddy in heaven who loves you. And if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you, if you understood what he thinks about you, he thinks thoughts about you, and he has feelings towards you, this creator God, and, and if you knew what he wanted to do in and through your life, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. His joy would be your strength. His sovereignty would be, be your sanity. His glory would be your delight. His love lavished on you would chase away all the worry, the anxiety, the fear, if you lived in the reality of that. And you would want to, here's the next two fill in the blanks, you would want to show and tell the world the good news. You would have that contagious love for him. You would want to show them what a friend they have in you so that you could tell them what a friend they have in Jesus. You don't argue people into belief, you love them into belief. And people may refuse to see the truth of the gospel, but they can't deny the evidence of a life filled with joy. That's the third time, uh, well, actually, I, I saw it more than that, but it just still has that impact on me. It has a, I can't get over it, that just as I thought about that and reflected on this dad's love and my dad in heaven, our, our father in heaven. Just amazing. So people may refuse to see the truth of the gospel, but they, they can't deny the evidence of, of our lives that are filled with joy. So being public about your faith 
is simply not hiding the source source of your joy and your love. And and I I made that, that's actually very clear in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, uh, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the joy or the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. The other verses that I gave you there really are just showing you that how God has given you gifts, gifts, all the gifts fit into one of those two categories, show or tell, demonstration, proclamation. And then we've got this whole list. Let me walk through it. So here's some skills to evangelism. It's a team sport. You need support. Jesus appointed 72 and sent them out two by two. So we do that together, pray. We need to continue to pray for those that are lost in our family, friends, those around us. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Verse three, oh, here's the answer to that. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Yeah, courage and gentleness. And then verse four, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He's saying travel light. Trust me to provide for you. Don't get so caught up in the temporal that you lose track of the eternal. That's what he's saying. And then verses five through eight, be a blessing wherever you go. Pronounce your peace upon people. Give people the the peace and the blessing they need. Verse nine, heal the sick, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and then tell them. In other words, bring, bring love where there's hatred, bring hope where there's depression, bring peace where there's stress. Verses 10 through 12, Don't take rejection personally. If they don't receive you, wipe the dust off your feet. And then what should drive this is this this compassion or empathy. Woe to you, verses 13 through 16. It's not a curse, but but a cry, an emotional engagement over the spiritual condition and destiny of those who don't know Christ. Now, let's talk motive. This is really healthy psychologically here, this part. If you can understand this, it's gonna really bring some great counsel to your life. It's gonna help you out. And he says, do not rejoice that the demons listen to you. So what he's saying there is do not rejoice. Uh, Do not get your ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness. Do not seek to make a name for yourself in the peripheral things over the essential things, in the superficial things over the substantial things, in the temporal things over the eternal things. And that's great counsel, really great counseling. The question is, and what he's wanting to get to the root of with the, with the disciples and then with us through this text, is where do you go for your deepest consolation when you're consoling yourself? Where's, that, where's the central sweetness of your life? When you fail or things go bad in your life, where do you run to make, to make you feel better about yourself, feeling like your life has meaning, it has purpose, it has worth and value? Where do you go? He's saying, don't go to the temporal don't go to the fact that, oh, well, look at my kids. Look how my kids have turned out. Don't do that, he's saying. Or, or look at my job. Or look at, look at how many people that I've led to the Lord. Or he says, don't do that. That's all temporal. It's fleeting. Build it on the eternal. Back uh, 17th Avenue and Bell Road days, the nightclub days. You guys, some of you probably remember those days. How many remember those days? 17th Avenue and Bell Road days. The place was called Sensations. No, not the church. But... Uh, but uh, that was the nightclub, and we turned it into a church, and we were there for a while. And uh, while we were there, uh, our f- finances really kind of took a hit, and we went through a, some, a little bit of a crisis in our church, and a number of things that happened. And, and it was back during 2001, 9-11, and some of the things that went down there, and it had an impact on our church. And, and I remember going away from board meetings, and then from week to week, I was kind of stressed out and, and very anxious. And when the money was up and the finances were up, 
when the finances were up, when the attendance was up, I was happy, and when it was down, I was sad, and, and I was riding a roller coaster, and the Holy Spirit began to convict me and say, Ray, why are you riding this roller coaster? I died for you. Why are you building your sense of meaning and purpose and worth and value on something that's so temporal? I love you. You have me. Here's, here's what you need to know. If you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster, it's because you are rejoicing too much in the temporal over the eternal. You're building your sense of worth and value on something that's temporal. Don't do that. Build it on the fact that your name is in heaven. Oh my goodness, that'll bring stability. By the way, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, he's not shaming us, but he's wooing us to greater levels of freedom and satisfaction. He's wanting us to kind of get our grip off of the eternal joys so that we can more fully embrace, I, I meant the temporal joys, He's wanting to get our grip off of the temporal joys so that we can more fully embrace the eternal joys and, and embrace all that he has for us. So don't boast. Here's your fill in the blank. Don't boast. Don't boast too much in your gifts, success, accomplishments, performance. And it's good to say, hey, look, God's made me very gifted in this. But he, don't boast too much in that. Put it in the fact that your name is in heaven. Or don't boast too much in the size of your church or how many people you are reaching or your family or success of your kids or how sexy your body is because that's not going to last very long <laughs> or your money or, or promotions or whatever. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything that we have has been given to us by God. In fact, our salvation is by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, because I understand what I have in him, the world doesn't have that same hold on me. It can't upset me. It can't make me anxious as it used to. Now, why should we not boast in the temporal because this is the same thing that made Satan fall? So if you're boasting in the temporal, success will inflate you, it will go to your head, and failure will deflate you, it will go to your heart. I shared this quote in our uh, Intimacy with God class, and there was a lot of people that wanted the quote, and then so then I tweeted it out later and put it on Facebook, but here's the quote, it's from St. Augustine, listen to what he says, worry, fear, sadness, and deep depression are the smoke from the fires rising from the altars of our idolatry. It's a great, great quote, great statement. Here's the second reason. You will become coercive and manipulative toward the people you reach. They will be your trophies. And if they don't listen to you, you'll respond badly. And if they reject you, you'll be very angry at them. You see that in, we saw that last week in Luke 9, 49 through 56. The disciples not only have an attitude of rivalry and selfish ambition toward those who are not on their team doing ministry like them, but also wanting to call fire out of heaven on those who reject Jesus. And it was due to their conceit. Conceit, remember, empty of glory. And so what are we to do? We are to boast, boast that your name is written in heaven. 
Don't rejoice in what you do, but rejoice in who you are in Christ. Luke 16, we'll eventually get there through our study through the Gospel of Luke. Luke 16, 19 through 31, there's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. How many are familiar with that story? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's a phenomenal story, fascinating story. And the rich man goes to hell, Lazarus goes to heaven, it's known as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. But the question is that many people will ask, well, why is Lazarus in heaven with a name and the rich man is in hell without a name? He's only known as the rich man. It's pretty fascinating when you study that. And here's what, what I believe, and I believe it's, it helps us to understand this idea of, of what we build our sense of meaning and, and worth on is that Lazarus, though he was poor in life, though he was poor, he was rich because he rejoiced in the creator over created things. The rich man, though he was rich, he was poor because he rejoiced in the temporal things over the eternal. And see, the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and to make a name for ourselves because Jesus has made a name for us. Because by grace through faith in Jesus, we have all of the approval, all the acceptance, all the security, all the significance we'll ever need in him. The only eyes in the universe that matter, the only opinion in the universe that matters looks at you and finds you more valuable than all the wealth of this world. That makes all the difference in our lives. It makes a difference in how we respond to life. And so when I boast in the fact that my name is written in heaven, that I have a relationship with the eternal God, why do I want to do that? Because you can courageously share the gospel regardless of what people think, because your name is written in heaven. And you can be compassionate with people who reject you because your name is written in heaven. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 tells us that Jesus' name was blotted out so that our name could be written in heaven, and so this is how I'm gonna end. I'm gonna end, and this will be our prayer. I would like to just recite this song. It's from Stuart Townend. It's How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Oh my goodness, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. So what I want you to do as I read through this is let these words heal your heart and satisfy your soul, and then we'll be finished. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it, it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.